In this episode of Spirit Stories, our guest is Venerable Medici, formerly Stephen Mayers, a man who's had a journey from the heights of corporate success down into the valley of trial and loss. This has led into ordaining as a bhikkhu, a Buddhist monk, later in life. But through all the ups and downs of Venerable Medici's journey, there has been a will to serve others, stemming from a wellspring of kindness. In this episode, we're going to learn about that journey and some of the unexpected ways behind the scenes that is still serving the growing Buddhist community in Australia with a heart of kindness. Welcome to Treasure Mountain, Venerable. Well, thanks, Saul. It's a lovely introduction. I'll try and do the best I can. <laughs> and that's all that anyone can ever ask of us. That's true. Um, Venerable, you started out as a uh, your working life as a highly motivated innovator in the corporate world. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Wow. Uh, we've got to go back some years, but um, I was lucky I love I love the name of your podcast, Treasure Mounting, because I think I've met a few treasures in my life that, that helped me on the journey. And uh, I had a breakthrough in my early 20s. Um, I came across a, a really wonderful man, David Mills, who was trying to innovate in marketing and banking in the UK. And we designed some innovative products. Um, I got a, song, a, a secondment to San Francisco, while I was there, I came across all sorts of innovations in, in marketing and consumer products. And um, sadly, in some respects, uh, the banking assignment didn't work out. I came back to the UK, but David arranged for me to get a scholarship to London Business School for something called the Sloan Fellowship. And the Sloan Fellowship was a wonderful innovation. Um, a gentleman called Alfred Sloan in the 1930s in America thought that there were lots of good people at a university, but they stopped learning by the time they were 30. And the Sloan Fellowship was a bequest to have people at around 30 years of age come and be tested through a, a pseudo-MBA and be taken outside their comfort zone, go and, go and learn from other industries and the like. And the payback for the bank who sponsored me, Midland Bank, was to write a thesis and with David, um, we agreed that I would write a case to create something called a direct bank. A direct bank was to try and do everything without branches in those days over the phone, and then it became um, over the internet. And I designed this bank called First Direct, which was an innovation in the late 80s. Um, it opened 24 hours a day, seven days a week from the 1st of October, 1989. And it quickly got a very good reputation around customer service, uh, very good interest rates on both sides of the ledger, credit and debit. Um, and I, I was given that wonderful opportunity in life, a blank piece of paper and say, how would you design a bank around customers rather than the other way around? And um, that helped me for many years in my career afterwards. So. That's where it all started, um, and you know I consider myself blessed from the experience. And uh, what did you feel that you achieved from that, both professionally, and what gains did you attain for yourself? I mean, what did you get out of that personally? Yeah, great question. Um, professionally, I thought I was very lucky because there were a number of people who would have liked to do the uh, the, the Sloan Fellowship. Um, I guess, you know, almost like with Buddhism, there was a lot of introspection um, that I needed to do. Like we ran a piece of work, um, piece of research that um, uh, one, wanted to see what the problems were from a consumer point of view with banking in the 1980s. And the research said, you know, most people didn't know who their bank manager was. They found the interrelations really difficult. They might have to wait two weeks for an appointment. There was lots of forms and documentation um, to fill in. 
So I asked myself, um, how could you make this really simple for a consumer? Like, could you, could you grant someone a loan after two minutes if you'd ask the right questions and use these new tool, tools called credit scoring? Um, how, how would you interact with someone really easily over the phone if they didn't believe that, you know, you could do everything over the phone? So um, over the years, I discovered that, you know, success has a, has a thousand fathers and uh, an orphan is, you know, very singular. So there were many people involved in the creation of that first direct. We needed, you know, new software uh, we needed new arrangements with certain banks. Some of the competitors, you know, tried to kill it at birth. So what I learned professionally was collaboration, um, innovation that could work, not too much of a pipe dream, but lots of testing. We did lots of uh, pilot um, implementations and tested it on, on real customers um, before we launched. And... One of the highlights for me was um, a lot of the banks initially ran propaganda to say, oh, nobody's going to want to speak to a call center in Leeds. They've got funny accents. And over time, we found it was better to hire someone with a customer service background, like a florist or an undertaker, or um, uh, they'd been a travel agent, and teach them banking rather than the other way around. And when people found that we were a really good employer, we cared about people. We, we had one of the first major creches in the UK. We looked after about 60 to 100 babies on a daily basis, which enables single mothers, you know, to, to find a job. The atmosphere, the culture that we created, Sol, was, was kind of really important. And the second part of your question, um, I'd say you, you, you get really stretched. You, you get stretched of... I wonder whether this will work in practice. I wonder whether I've got close enough to the customers to understand what I want. And will, will we be able to deal with any political or uh, competitive challenges as they arise and, and keep, the, keep the ethos, the, the truth of the proposition? Unfortunately, it's still going 30 years later, and it's probably the most admired consumer um, institution financial or otherwise in the UK. It's very interesting because obviously that kind of um, orientation towards banking has been revolutionary. And um, what we take for granted today, like this 24-7 kind of banking, someone had to invent it. Um, and as you say, many people were involved. I find it very interesting that um, in describing uh, what you got out of it, it wasn't like you were motivated necessarily just about money. It was about, can we provide something that's really good? You're interested in the process and also interested in um, caring about the people, both customers and also employees and so forth. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's a beautiful pickup on your part. So um, you're really taking me back in my memory banks, but I remember, <laughs> having th I remember having three treasures at London Business School who were professors one had come up with this new theory called the seduction process, which people teased me over the years and said, oh, that's Mayer's seduction process. But the seduction process said you had to design the factory to meet the needs of the customer. But if the customer needs changed, you had to change the way the factory operated. And it was a simple model, but it was really powerful. And the closest um, I felt at the time that was doing simple work was Apple. Apple Macintosh, which had only been out, um, you know, a little point in time, but said, how do you make things really easy for the customer? So, you know, I was intrigued about that. And, and I found ideas in other industries that hadn't, you know, nobody thought to apply them in the UK or, or, or in finance. The second bit and the more important bit is one of those treasures, a, a guy by the name of Charles Handy, to me, was an eccentric Irishman who was teaching at London Business School. He'd been a senior executive for Shell, but his course was about looking inside yourself and what your meaning in life was. And in about the week four of that Sloan Fellowship, my dad had died suddenly the week before, and Charles Handy walks in and says, 
I'd like everybody to write their obituary as homework. And we were asked to sort of look forward to the year when we might reach 80 and then count back from that and say, what did you want to achieve? And with me, I kind of just kind of let that flow. I'd, I'd been heavily influenced by Martin Luther King, you know, when I was about 10 or 11. I, I, you know, I liked the, the people that were sort of making a difference in, in the world. Mine was really a humble piece of homework saying, I hope I can make a contribution, you know, to the world. And, and I have some good people, you know, along that journey, what, what we now in Buddhism would call Kalyana meters. But again, you see, there was a person who was somewhat spiritual who gave you a blank piece of paper but said, take a look at this and how will you make some meaning out of it? And is it something that you can sustain? Has it got foundations to it? I yeah, hope that helps. No, no, that's really interesting. It's, it's also very interesting, like um... – I think sometimes when you get into spiritual practice like Buddhism, you expect that you're going to find the answers um, maybe on a meditation retreat or maybe in a deep book on Dharma or something like that. But the answers uh, that we need are everywhere. Uh, and I think your answer kind of goes to that point is that we only need to look or be open um, to find the answers that we need at any one particular time. Um, but I do want to go back to something you said in your previous answer. You talked about how you felt stretched, um, even though, you know, what you were doing was successful. Uh, you had that sense that w would things get knocked back for political reasons? Would the competition come and, you know, outfox you? Uh, can you just, just talk about that feeling? Because, um, you know, you're at your top of your game, but it's not easy, is it? Yeah. Um, what I'd want to convey and, you know, now I'm in my uh, mid-60s. The thing I'd sort of like to help with is if I can explain to the younger generation, you know, what they may kind of face in life. And if I could save them an inch or two of suffering, you know, that, that, that would be a nice um, outcome, you know, from this podcast. So what I'd want to say as an answer is in, in the generation there, which in the UK had been going through some tough times. So, Margaret Thatcher, you know, wanted to destroy the unions. Um, I can remember being at university and there was a three-day week and having to do lots of the homework by candlelight um, long before having a computer, you know, at a university. So there was a whole bunch of hard times and I was, I was blessed to have two lovely parents, although, you know, I lost my, my father fairly early. But I'd say the UK culture that was conditioning me was you must achieve, you must achieve. And kind of, you know, the higher you went, there were still achievements that society or your employer wanted or sometimes, you know, um, uh, your partner. And I look back now and saying I was stretched in a number of directions that probably weren't healthy, but fortunately I wasn't amongst enough good people to say, I think that'll do it. We'll do that as an experiment um, first. Mm. I'd be honest and say I didn't have a spiritual foundation at that time. Um, I think the, the drive to keep your job, um, try and create some innovation, that was definitely there. But I wish uh, the Dharma teachings had been freely available, you know, when I was 20, which is um, 40 years ago. What I'd add as, a, as an additional point is um, we had these horrible troubles in Northern Ireland between the Protestants and the Catholics. And I had gone to church in, in the UK and I had tried to do innovations in, in youth work when I was 14 or 15. And, and they were loved by the church. But I didn't think it was something that I want to follow if parts of Christianity were fighting with each other. That's what I remember a lot from the news in those days. And I'd, I'd argue that I was a lost soul probably from about 20 years of age to my mid-30s, you know, looking for a home. Well, let's move on a little bit from that point, from the 80s. Um, you obviously did find career success, but as you said, you were stretched in a lot of different ways and um, things 
did start to fall apart a bit in your life a little bit later on, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, um, very grateful to to First Direct, very grateful to to some people there. The the parent bank that I worked for in the UK was in some real difficulties and um, it ended up being weak because of that American bank that I went to work for and eventually had to be sold and, and it was sold to the HSBC. And the HSBC indicated that a lot of the senior Midland Bank managers uh, wouldn't necessarily have a long-term career in HSBC. So I started looking overseas. And as luck would have it, somebody who knew my first rep background said, oh, you should, you should look at this bank in Australia. So I was headhunted to Australia in 1994 um, to run the marketing. Um, uh, I... I got married fairly quickly. I've got two beautiful kids that I'm uh, uh, proud of. But um, I found over the years that whilst I could have a job of some seniority, some of the ethical decisions that were being made, some of the um, ways in which um, consumers weren't dealt with appropriately um, troubled me. So I think that's where my spiritual search um, started. And I was looking for a nexus like, um, yes, I needed a salary to live in Sydney. There was a young family that I needed to support. But I was really pushing hard against, you know, the questions, what's the meaning of life? You know, what am I doing here? And am I doing the right things? I dare say that there's uh, quite a few other people that are going through similar questioning as well, especially, you know, as you said, like the, you know, the corporate world can be quite um, challenging, not just in the sense of the amount of work that you're sometimes required to do, but also, as you say, the ethical uh, grey zones are even, you know, worse, uh, which can come up. Um, so perhaps we could uh, tell us, how did you end up becoming interested in Buddhist practice? Um. Okay, yeah, it was it, it, it was fortunate. I'll I'll, I'll tell um, yeah I'll, I'll I'll tell a simple story. So um, um, my my marriage my marriage broke down, and um, I was living on my own, and I had the odd acquaintance. And one of those acquaintances, um, after not hearing from them for a number of months, rang me up one day and said, um, I'm thinking you're committing suicide while you're on the phone. And I said, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Where are you? Um, uh, let me come and see you. You know, um, I'm, I'm happy to help as a friend. Uh, you know, I wonder what we can do. And uh, this particular person, uh, good person, but, but somewhat troubled. And I looked around to try and find a psychologist that might help. And I stumbled um, across a person who said he had a blend of psychotherapy and Buddhist practice. And I said to this person, look, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for you to go to, to a number of sessions but if it doesn't work, doesn't work for you, then we'll, we'll find something else. And this person went to those sessions and um, they didn't think it was the right therapy for them. And I arranged for them to uh, move somewhere safe in, in sort of New South Wales. And um, I believe that they're still alive today and they're, they're in a much better place, which is, you know, was important to what I was trying to achieve. <clears throat> But when things caught up with me about a year later and I was somewhat depressed, I looked up this person and I thought, well, I'll go and see them. And his name is John Barter and he has a practice called Well Awareness, lovely, lovely name to pick. And John let me know that he ran three meditation groups a week and I gradually gave that a go. And then as I got sort of more involved, um, you know, as a client. But I think there was fair separation there between, you know, client and uh, 
um, and the person running the practice, um, I asked to be taken deeper on the Buddhist side. And I eventually discovered that John uh, was an ex-monk in the Theravada tradition who'd been a nurse for Ajahn Chah um, for a number of years. That's how it started, really. So, Wow. So actually, you sounds like you went from uh, getting therapy to starting to practice meditation to even be, you ended up teaching meditation after not too long a time. Is that correct or do I get that wrong? No, um, that, that's correct. So um, just want to add something, you know, because you mentioned it a couple of questions back. I think if someone was in my situation and the podcast was, you know, trying to help people who may be struggling in corporate life, I'd say it'd be beautiful if you could find a Kalyanamita, someone who you feel comfortable with, who you can talk about, you know, how the mind operates and you get support for yourself. Because I think you have to be well and happy in yourself first, you know, to go on and do something else. So um, I had very deep conversations for, for John and eventually he let me record some of those sessions because I wanted to reflect on, you know, what the answers were and me trying to understand, you know, what depression was, what the cures were, what were the things to avoid, um, you know, did I have any addictions? And the fact that you could then sit with a beautiful group um, in those meditation groups and some were open to share, um, that, that was a big benefit to my recovery. Um, I was in John's groups for about four or five years, and as John and I got closer and closer and, and studied a lot of Buddhism together and even looked at other religions um, to see if there was um, other practices that would help, John eventually made the decision that Sydney had got very expensive um, and he would try and run his practice by commuting from um, the Tweed Valley where he and his partner had a property. He did that for a number of years and then said, um, can't continue it, you know, I'm moving for good. Would you take over these meditation groups? So by then I had about five or six years practice under my belt and I asked the group what they wanted and then we we developed a certain style for, for doing those groups. And I just tried to make sure um, I was aligned with what people wanted to get out of it and sort of drop the ego at the front door, you know, before we did a session. I think, thank you for that answer. I think you've made a very important point, which is about the idea of the Kalyana Mira, which is like a spiritual friend, someone you can, who has um, spirituality as uh, part of their lives who can be a support for you, but also the idea of the group. I think uh, particularly in the West, we tend to try, we idealise self-reliance and often what we really need is is um, really good people, or wise people, compassionate people close to us to, to influence us in a positive way. So I think it's a really good point. Now, I, I just find it interesting that you personally went from having going through a bit of a, a dark patch in your life and you said you had depression, finding a way through that and then for too long you're actually helping as a, a meditation group leader, group teacher. Uh, and you and indeed later on you would get kind of skip out of the, the corporate world and you started a mental health charity. I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, there's a fair amount of serendipity there. So um, uh, I, I was still married uh, at that point and took on a role to be a CEO in Wollongong for a credit union. Um, the credit union had a charter to service, you know, a, a particular community, though, those that were members of the credit union. And the charter also said that any profits you had, you know, if, if there was a, a windfall, you know, you should return that to the membership. And this credit union was called City Coast Credit Union. And some of the staff wanted to have a party for an upcoming 40th anniversary. And I held up the, 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 um, I held up the charter and said, look, I'd rather we find something that was really sustainable. 
and might give back to the community. So I issued a challenge to the community. I, 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 we hired this, uh, the mad scientist, Dr. Carl Krzyzanelski, and he came down to Wollongong and, and held a session, and we invited people to bring along their ideas of what um, Wollongong really needed. Wasn't actually in that meeting, but separately, someone approached and said, you've got a real problem with mental health in Wollongong. The, the facilities aren't there. You're not you know, helping people. And we asked this particular man, you know, what help was needed. And he said he, he had a dream to bring a brain imaging camera to, to Wollongong, have the, have the money raised in, in Wollongong, and donate it to the University of, of Wollongong um, to see if we could find a cure for schizophrenia. You know, it was a big, big claim. These, these cameras uh, that they were going to use were about 10 feet tall by memory. And basically, they, they needed post-mortem tissue from supposedly normal individuals and schizophrenia um, individuals. And they would look for the chemicals in the brain and see if there was something amiss related to the chemicals. So I took it to my board and they said, oh, we can really back this. And I, I said, well, I need some key people in Wollongong. And Wollongong, bless them, um, the whole community got behind it. They used to say, we can't use Sydney in a sentence with something like this because we think they'll nick our project. Um, but everybody came on board and we raised about a quarter of a million for this camera in like nine weeks, donated it to the university and... Um, they immediately could hire PhDs from all over the world. This was the only camera of its type in the Southern Hemisphere. They soon found that, yes, there were about three chemicals missing um, in the brain of a, of a schizophrenic almost from birth. One of them was omega-3, uh, you know, which we call fish oil. Um, so really impressive Um to work with the community like that, you know, there's a real sense of excitement, you know, made it happen. And the University of Wollongong still, you know, still uses that and they use it for many other applications now, you know, diabetes. However, there's a sting in the tail. Having completed it, um, the a lady in the town who was quite famous asked to meet me for dinner, and I asked one of the community members to come along with me. I didn't know this uh, second lady. And for about an hour and a half, she was really tough on me saying, oh, you and the Lord Mayor have done a dreadful thing. You've, you've looked after the future with research, but you're not looking after people now. You're, you don't know there's a problem. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, uh, this is, where are we? This is about 2001, 2002. Many years before, there's a famous document in mental health history in Australia called the Richmond Report, and all the asylums were closed by the government. That's what they decided to do. But the Richmond Report said you need to build facilities so that these people can live happily in the local community and be taken care of. The asylums were closed, but the facilities didn't come along. And she asked me to go to a kitchen to meet, um, you know, people suffering from mental illness, not being looked after, you know, in their view, well enough in, in sort of local society. And I can remember going to that kitchen and coming out afterwards and just crying by the side of the road that here was me that had really been looked after in Australia. And I'd been in Australia now seven, eight years and I just had no comprehension how hard it was for a sufferer and how they were supposed to live 24 by 7. So they challenged us to put together um, what was known as a mental health clubhouse. A clubhouse sold around the world is a facility that's set up where people with mental illness are actually given the keys to the institution and you hire about seven or eight project managers to sit around these people and come up with what's called a work-assisted day. So a work-assisted day might say, okay, um, we're going to go out into the local community and we're going to look for jobs that are available and get contracts in hospitality. Then we're going to bring that job back. It's construction and we're going to teach it to about six people in the clubhouse. 
we're going to cook 100 meals a day in the clubhouse sufficient that we can feed people and they can come and get a decent meal. We'll help them with their housing. We'll get into employment. And I went, that rocks. That, that is such a beautiful idea. And the Lord Mayor said, is it for real? I said, well, there's, there's one in Sydney and there's one in Brisbane. So I went and visited both of them. And I found wherever a mental health clubhouse had been put in place anywhere in the world, it had reduced hospital rates for um, severely, um, you know, challenged uh, people with mental illness by about 85 to 95%. And I went, that's not a simple number. You know, people look for fives and 10%. Um, let's do this. So, again, using the energy that we did with um, uh, the camera, the brain imaging camera, I wanted to see who would come on board. And um, the University of New South Wales got a whole year's uh, built environment, you know, technical specialist students in their final year to come to Wollongong and work with me and try and come up with a design that came from the consumer's ideas, like to get their buy-in, you know, would, would, they, would, would they buy into this project? You know, would it, would, would it work? Would it help them? Um, cut a long story short, the council unfortunately was fired for corruption um, about a year after donating 3,000 square meters of land in Wollongong for the construction of the first built clubhouse. We stuck around together as a committee and we opened a temporary facility about a year later and it's just had its 11th or 12th birthday. Um, it's open four days a week and unfortunately it's still there, you know, it's kicking on and more than some of that corporate work, that, that, that gives me a good feeling in the heart that there are 130 people that might have been through that clubhouse now and there are really good people in Wollongong making sure it continues day after day and people are supported and they've found jobs in the community and they're helped with their medication and they're looked after for housing. Um, one of the highlights of my life was when I asked my kids, who at the time I think were 11 and 9, to take eight people from the clubhouse to the Easter show in Sydney. And, uh, you know, I could almost cry. That was just such a beautiful day, just mm. a beautiful day. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And something that's it's sustainable, but also I think it goes back to that idea of um, support, having having good people around you, caring people around. It makes such a difference. And as you say, and often people with mental illness are, are on the fringe. Um, so it's, it's fantastic to get that support to them. Now, I'm listening to what you're saying, and it sounds to me like you've got a pretty successful life. You know, you've been successful in terms of your career, in terms of in a professional success. You know, you've had a family, and not just that, you haven't stopped at that. You're you're learning meditation, you're teaching meditation, and then you've got this um, uh, orientation towards giving to the community. Yet that wasn't your end point. That wasn't something about that wasn't quite enough. You decide that uh, you're going to go give that all up and become a monk. Perhaps you could explain how did that come about? Um, like most human beings, I've got lots of flaws. <laughs> and um, I realized um, I, had, I had two problems. One, one was related to food. So I joined a 12-step group related to food. I noticed that. I needed lots of energy to get stuff done. Well, when I was in a stressful situation, I might have had breakfast an hour ago, but I would go and have another breakfast if I had a difficult meeting to go through. You know, I had to, I had to do a disciplinary. I had to um, make a major financial decision. And it got quite ridiculous towards the end. Some people, I felt, were listening in the corridor outside my office when I had a major decision to make. So I used to turn to my personal assistant and said, let's meet in conference room three. And conference room three was a bad coffee shop, you know, about 800 meters away. And I'd have another coffee and I'd have a croissant, you know, and I'd role play what I was going to do. And then say, you go back to the office, you know, cover the phones. And I'd have another coffee, you know, to set myself up. So a shout out to 12 set groups that um, – they kind of really helped me like um, a year or two before I, came a monk, before I came a monk. I lost 40 kilos in about nine months. 
I actually lost too much, you know, put it back on. But there, there was an important link there between sort of Buddhism and spirituality. Um, and, you know, Buddhism was a major feature in my life, but I, I kind of wanted to see uh, how, how my mind, you know, was going with that. Um, I've apologized to a number of women over my life that the second problem was I, I wasn't great in relationships. I didn't, I didn't have certain skills. So um, I, would pe I would put people up on a pedestal and believe you could go off into the sunset, you know, like Walt Disney. Um, but again, that wasn't the case. And there's a 12-step group for that too. So um, it, it kind of grounded me. And, and the thing was, combined with Buddhism, really needed to turn inwards. And then at some level, I said, there's got to be something else. And I'm going to be cheeky here a little bit, but... I remember in 2001, two in Sydney, you could find hardly any books on Buddhism um, in Sydney. If they were there, they were nice tomes, but most of them were about the Dalai Lama and they were written by you know a third party. Um, I don't remember seeing Ajahn Brahm's famous book, Mindfulness, Bliss and Beyond, you know, in certain bookshops till. 2010, 2011 in, in Sydney. And I probably wouldn't have got all of it by then. But kind of looking, looking for resources, um, you know, Buddhism, I kind of found that quite hard. But John Barter had um, sort of kind of got me thinking. And the mantra I came up with in the end, which is in some of those tasks that, that I took on in my life, was to keep looking for what I thought was the absolute truth. So I, I joined some Buddhist groups and it, and it didn't turn out well because um, I was unhappy with their ethics. And the cheekiness is, you know, some of the Buddhist teachers out there, I think they dumbed down Buddhism to the point of, oh, well, if you meditate in mindfulness, that will get you a better relationship or it will get you a pay rise or the new shiny red car is just going to turn up from another planet, you know, next week, you know, if you go, if you go deep enough. And I can honestly say, you know, lucky running into Ajahn Brahm in 2017, having not seen each other, you know, for a number of years, um, that I didn't find all of the real teachings till I got to Bodhinyana and, you know, asked the deep questions and kind of went into the library and, and, and talked to people. So, I was looking a long time, Saul. I, I think I got so far down certain roads. Um, I think I, I think I ran into some wobbly bits that um, weren't true, weren't accurate, you know, weren't helpful. But the thing I'm most proud about, you know, apart from my kids, um, is that I didn't give up ask, you know, holding to the important question and saying, um, "Don't know how much time I've got left in in this life." Um, now that they're old enough that I could consider doing a something, let's see what I can find out as long as I can still, you know, maintain some, some relationship with them and, and, and help them out if they got into strife. Wow. That's a excellent, um, little story because also it shows the, the power of, um, sticking with it, um, and that, there can be wobbly bits, you know, sometimes I think, you know, I know for myself when I started out practicing, I thought, well, now everything's going to get solved. It's all going to be fixed. And, uh, of course, it doesn't work quite out, quite like that, does it? We have still have challenges and so forth. So, But it is that sticking with it that really makes a difference. Well, of course, you had a big influence as well, so I'm not going to let you off the hook easily. Because, because you were an innovator and um, got – BSWA to go onto the internet, that those those videos, those clips being out there, and you could access them, access them, and you could you could type into BSWA, you know, let's see a talk on depression, let's see a talk on on loving kindness. That was leading edge stuff. So for, for me, catching up and what I hope young people in particular and those that are struggling with depression and the like say. You know, I tell people now there's 3,000 talks on BSWA. There's 3,000 podcasts on the 
the main site, you know, bswa.org. And probably a lot of people didn't believe you when you started out. You know, you were in the innovation, like, how are we going to do this? And, and how are we going to get the sound quality right? So after I started looking, some form of karma came into play. And then I was flooded with stuff. And I had to kind of filter it as well in terms of who's, who's giving the closest to absolute truth and who's kind of playing at the margins. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you found, I mean, I think at any stage in life, uh, giving up all your worldly possessions and becoming a monk is, is a pretty big step. And uh, for some, they feel like it's coming home. And for others, it's just it's really quite challenging how have you found, um, you know, ordaining and becoming becoming a, a fully ordained bhikkhu? How has that journey been for you? Well, I got to I got to laugh at myself in in sort of two thousand and seventeen. So, well, one job job came to a very painful end. One attempt at a relationship came to a painful end, and I went, you know, just just turned 60, might be hard to get another job, you know, in, in corporate world or, or at a senior level. I better look carefully. And um, I just haven't learned the lesson around relationships. You know, I think I'm a kind and sort of generous man, but I think um, corporate life has got tougher. Um, there are more distractions in the world. Um, the amount of um, input from, you know, shock jocks, uh, pop psychologists, you know, in terms of what constitutes a relationship, how you're supposed to make it into the world. Um, Just a tsunami, in my view, of difficult and bad information. Um, That that brought me up really short. And again, I had a lucky moment. Um, When John Barter made that decision to go to the Tweed, I helped him pack up is house um, uh, practice rooms in North Sydney. And I, I tried to arrange that he would have one day free before he left. And what would he really like to do in Sydney, um, uh, you know, before he left? I'd, I'd take him anywhere, yeah? And this day was a Saturday. And all week he was teasing me and I go, I wouldn't have picked that from John. He he wants to do this. He wants to do that. And I picked him up at 8.30 on the Saturday, and he says, you know where I want to go really, don't you? And I said, I think so, but you've been been shaking me all week. He said, let's go to Santi Monastery and see I and Naroda. And (laughs) that's what I thought he he would want to do, that I and Naroda, as a uh, layperson, had donated the land for Santi, indeed, donated the land for another monastery in, in Bundanoon as well. And John had been the initial president of Santi when they constructed it. So they had 30 years history. And he wanted to pay his respects and he, and he, and he, and he, and he wanted to say his goodbyes. And when we got to Santi, it was clear that Ayan Aroda had a whole heap of management um, issues that um, were troubling her. And my mouth spoke before I thought about it. And she said, <laughs> um, any chance you could help out? And I said, yeah, I'll come for a number of weekends and I'll pitch into it. You know, I'll look at your insurance and the constitution and how the committee's working. So I started to do all that and blow me. Um, she said, oh, Ajahn Ram's coming through here in a few weeks. You should tell him your story. Now, what I hadn't covered already is I'd applied to be a monk somewhere else in the world about five or six years before, and I got a letter back saying, we find men over 45 are intolerant, stubborn, and hard to train. <laughs> That's harsh. So I and Aroda encourages me you know, to have a chat with Ajahn Brahm, and Ajahn Brahm comes through, and, uh, and he says, why don't you have a look at Bodhinyana? And I said, why? I'm, I'm way too old, you know. Uh, most monasteries, you know, won't take a guy above 45. Oh, no, he said, you know, I ordained one American at 70. You know, he's still with us. You know, come and have a look. The point of my rambling soul was um, <laughs> I, 
I was offered an opportunity to go and have a look. I managed to get to Bodanyana the following Monday. It was either come for three days or there wasn't anything available for seven months. Then somebody dropped out. Then they said, oh, if you stay for three weeks, you know, we can consider you to be an Anagarika. Um, uh, I'd only packed for three days, so I said, well, can I go and get some more clothes? I got, I got to the Anagarika moment, and they said, oh, we need your decision now um, if you'll come back for rains. Um, I said I needed to go back and talk to my daughter in particular and ask her permission, almost like the other way around, because I wanted a long-term relationship, you know, with both of them. And the bottom line is five weeks, you know, after going back to come and see my daughter, I, I was back getting ready to be ordained as an Agaka. So I didn't have much time to think about it, but I had to get rid of 92% of everything I had in five <laughs> weeks. So if, I, if I had to sit and think about it, you know, go, should I, shouldn't I? And the nice thing was I did have a few Kalyana mitters in my life. So I had 2,000 books that I was really proud of. More than half of them were, were Buddhist. So I shipped nine freight boxes to John Barter so he could have a library of three days <laughs> of all my best stuff. And unfortunately, it's still there. And um, I had a, an innovator who was doing good social work, so I went around with the Buddha books and said, you know, will you take these? So I managed to get rid of just about everything to good places, good houses. One, one, one of the, the other nights that made me cry is I found this refugee organization in Western um, Sydney um, that had nothing. So they took my exercise bike, the TVs, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. So the stuff that went down to the tip was mostly of kind of, you know, no or limited value. And I had to ship a whole series of papers here so I could meet my tax returns over the years. Um, so I'm glad it happened quick, Sol. <laughs> <laughs> a blessing in disguise. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's bring us up to the present day because uh, even as a bhikkhu living in a hut in the forest with few possessions, you're still giving your time and effort and the skills you've acquired in your working life to serve the community. Could you tell us about one or two of the projects that you've been working on recently? Wow. Um, well, the first thing, I mean, I think it was unbelievably generous, you know, to be given the offer to be, you know, considered. One of the things I really like about Ajahn Brahm and um, – the senior monastics is the rule in Bodhinyana is to give everybody a go, you know, without, without any preferences. Yeah. Mm. And I've seen that happen so many times now. So fortunately for me, I, I fell into that set where other places might say, you know, you're too old. So when it was clear that, um, there was a massive amount of work that BSWA was trying to do, and you know there may be some shortcomings. Um, I put my hand up to fill in, you know, a management gap, and especially, um, you know, the last organisations I were invo was involved with was not for profits, and I'd always made it a job in life to keep my nose clean. So I had good contacts in the charity space, government space. Um, I hadn't blotted my copybook, so, you know, phone a friend if there was an issue. So, um, you know, I first appear in a BSWA um, YouTube clip at the 2018 AGM where Ajahn Brahm resigns. <laughs> um, and uh, there's an issue, you know, related to sort of constitutions and the like, and I find that there's time pressures in WA that we've really got to, um, bring that constitution up to date. Um, I needed to do a selling job with the community that, you know, governments in a lot of respects shouldn't be feared, that there were really good reasons why Western Australia was asking all the sessions to, to update it. So, um, you know, I, I, I led a team, you know, to do that. Um, you know, that took a lot of time and then, you know, when there were issues on insurance and um, other things, I kind of volunteered to, look, I can look over this in an hour or two and because I had a long experience in financial services, I can, I can deal with the gobbledygook. I can work out fairly quickly whether you're getting a good rate. 
but I also wanted to have BSWA build, you know, good relationships with um, uh, people who were supplying supplying to us. Um, after mm. a year, I was asked to go on the Australian Sanger Association um, uh, committee. Uh, multiple traditions, uh, trying to help you know all monastics who are members across Australia. There are you know some lay members, and surprise, surprise, some of them were asking for advice on mental health, how to deal with that. You know, somebody came to a monastery, how to deal with governance issues, constitution, um, and I've been on that. Uh, committee ever since and probably then the last point I'd make is um, we often have to engage you know carefully on certain issues and a big one that came up was the religious discrimination bills which originally were called religious freedom Um, in Buddhism we would choose you know not to discriminate against anyone Uh, we have great relationships you know in sort of multi-faith so um, I, on three occasions, once uh, with a co-author in, in, in Melbourne, wrote the submissions on the part of the Australian Sanger Association to government and, and said, um, we can't support discrimination of any type against a vulnerable group, uh, a, a major religion um, discriminating against a minor religion. And um, it's pleasing that I think in recent times, Buddhism has got through to federal government and I for the ASA and the Buddhist Council of New South Wales were represented. We presented to the Senate um, uh, by Zoom a few weeks ago. And I think our points were listened to that There should be nothing in it that allowed one religion to discriminate against another. There needed to be protections for gay students, uh, uh, gay teachers, and um, we 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 couldn't support the bill. In fact, you know, we were concerned that it was coming up in in the first place. We were more concerned that there be harmony across all faiths, and you know, we did good things for Australia and, and paid back for the support that we'd have, you know, even a little dinky individual like me that had turned up in 1994. I think just for the benefit of the listeners, we should probably just quickly explain that uh, Religious Freedom Bill, which was supposed to um, give uh, religious institutions, particularly, I guess, the big churches, the right to hire and fire based on their particular teachings or ethics of their religion, which could potentially discriminate against uh, you know, gay and lesbian people, um, against uh, perhaps people of other religions or no religion. So I, in one sense, I guess the stance that the Australian Sangha Association took was a little bit controversial because we were saying, well, hang on, that's not the kind of religious freedom we're after, is it? Where we rather see that everyone gets protected and that there's no discrimination. Is that Am I saying that correctly or would could you fill, fill us in on that one? I like your words, although my response would be, it was easy for a Buddhist organization to say that you wouldn't discriminate against any, anyone. You know, the core of the Buddhist teachings is um, we shouldn't have preference against anybody because of race, for color, for sexual preferences, for, you know, em- employment preferences. And if you understand the principle of anatta, non-self, um, that we're a constant flux of physical and mental processes, you know, that's not the same in one or two moments. The thing that's helped me enormously is I ought to live from the four divine abodes, which is loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So the job of religion, and, and I think I have colleagues in other religions that say, well, the first point of religion is to have a kind heart, a good heart, and, and help your practitioners, your parishioners. Um, but don't just apply it to yourself. Apply it, you know, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. Look after your neighbor. 80% of the religious tracts, I think, are very similar um, in nature. And the best spiritual leaders in, in all traditions 
come from that point of view, in my experience. Well, it, um, perhaps it wasn't so controversial for Buddhism because it doesn't seek to discriminate anyway, but you were taking a position which was contrary to what some of the big churches were taking. Do you find that there was any tension there that, um, that you know, Buddhist representatives were on the other side of the argument? Um, great question. Um, the the Hansards there for anybody to look at, and uh, they, there was downloads. You could actually get the Senate hearing. They, they organized panels in small numbers sufficient that um, people presenting were given adequate time. So I was on a panel of three organizations, ASA, Buddhist Council of New South Wales, and the Hindu Council. So there wasn't a Christian in our group, and, and, and we were asked to put over our position. I chose to watch some of the others, and I was a bit taken aback that one church might turn up and make its presentation. The three people from the same organization didn't have a common view, and actually it was contradictory within the church. Ah. So, the, so the Senate then said, okay, I, I give you this point on notice. Can you come back to me when you have resolved what you want from this bill? Because I'm mightily confused. Yeah, right. Yes. I, I guess that's part, maybe part because, you know, the, the long story short is that bill was um, defeated. It didn't go through. Is that correct? It wasn't defeated in the sense of um, what happened on the night that they were discussing it in the lower house. A number of parliamentarians in the Liberal Party crossed the floor. Mm. And it may have got through in the lower house, but those in the Senate said, we can't support it when it got to the Senate. So the government, because it was short, it, it was running out of time, decided to take, um, uh, you know, the bill sort of down, as it were, and wanted to uh, see if it could remodel it, you know, put in some of these changes. But the following morning, a, a major Christian organization said, we don't want the bill now. It doesn't give us what we want. We we wanted to have these discriminations, something that we feared all along that some organizations would use it to say ethos as far as the church was concerned is you can't use our schools um, uh, to let gay you know, and the like come in. So can I use the phrase, you know, it, it kind of failed um, politically mm. um, and eventually the prime minister and the Attorney General announced, you know, it wouldn't make it in this sitting of Parliament. So we have to wait and see what might happen next. And, of course, there's an election coming up, but that's another story. <laughs> um, maybe just by way of uh, winding things up, um, you've, you know, for one reason or another, you've uh, fallen into this role where you're serving uh, both Buddhist Society of WA, also the Australian Sangha Association and others, in terms of offering advice, and and you're serving in a way which, um, you know, the the work of you know administration and constitutions and committees and so forth is not always um, uh, the most uh, kind of interesting for everybody, and it, and it and it can sometimes involve conflict, and yet you're still giving. How do you how do you keep at it? And uh, you know what what's the secret? And do you see yourself doing this for a bit longer? <laughs> um, you know, there's that lovely British expression, you know, doing this work will do your head in. So const constitutions will do your head in. Some, you know, looking over the legal work, you know, we, we bought a parcel of land next door um, only on Thursday, but to get the transaction to the line was a bit difficult in the last few days. And uh, I was kind of, I want to be a monastic. I want to be a monastic. But, <laughs> but, um, the truth of it is I've looked at this a number of times and, I've, and I've, I've kind of gone, I've really got to step back a number of times. And then I've realized that it's actually quite good for your practice. So I don't, I don't lose any sleep over I've done bad things in the world or insulted or made some, something difficult, yeah? I don't, I don't lose sleep like, oh, there's this dreadful deadline coming up really fast because Many of these things, if you're careful, you do them on monastery time. Ajahn Brahm doesn't give you a deadline. Uh, 
BSWA doesn't give you a, a serious deadline, you know, which is um, unachievable. But I have to say, if I can save a committee member time or someone's really kind of struggling um, with an issue and I can do it in an hour and they're going to fret about it for 14 hours, I think that's that's good meta. I, I, I think that's good, you know, meta to offer. Um, I... I I would like to think in the Sangha we'll be careful about the next iteration of the 10 or 15 years of BSWA and we won't burn um, sort of people out. But nice thing that's come my way then is other organizations, Buddhist organizations, said, oh, we've got a problem in Queensland. Can we have your constitution because you, you did YouTube um, information evenings on it to get it through BSWA? And I said, oh, great. I did it once, but now it's playing out three or four times. Um, so I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy to offer, but I mean, you know me well, so um, I'm, I'm going to be. I have to be a little bit more careful in getting the balance right um, uh, between practice and sort of management work. But now I can see there's a link between the two because if you're dealing with a horny, thorny issue like. Um, uh, the religious discrimination bill, you need to have a single pointed focus really to see what it's about. Um, would the others in the ASA support it? Is there a pothole you should fall into? You don't really want to get into politics, but you, you might wish to support ethics given there's 500,000 Buddhists now. We're still a minor religion, but I, I, I thought we were speaking for humanity. We weren't speaking for religion. Mm. And um, in, in that sense, you know, I sleep well and um, I can, I've got a host of stories if anybody asks me to teach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wonderful. Well said, well said. Uh, well, you're, Venerable, you're providing a vital support to um, to the community Buddhist community here in Australia, and we thank you for that. And uh, I want to thank you very much for taking your time and being so giving, telling your story here on Treasure Mountain. Thank you. In this episode, we learned that life can take unexpected turns, and it doesn't always follow a script. However, by having a heart of kindness and dedication to serving others, the impact we can have on others can be so very beneficial, and we can find meaning in our actions and contentment in our heart. Benwell Medici never planned to become a monk, but now that he has taken that step, it hasn't stopped him from contributing his time and energy to serving others. I hope you have found this story as inspiring as I have. In our next episode, Benwell Medici will be joining us for Sage Advice, a show in which our guests answer questions on topics related to spiritual practice. The topic for the next episode will be giving with a heart of kindness. I hope that you will join us then. In the meantime, I would love to get your feedback. One way that you can do that is by going to the treasuremountain.info website and either clicking on the contact link to leave a text message or by clicking on the microphone symbol in the bottom right to leave an audio message. Please let me know what you think about the show. I'm interested to hear what your questions are about spiritual practice so that can be shared with future guests on Sage Advice episodes. So let me know your questions and also let me know the topics you'd like to learn about too. You would also be most welcome to join in our discussion on the Treasure Mountain Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe to Treasure Mountain on your favourite podcast player. And if you like the show, let your friends know about this podcast too. I've got some really inspiring guests coming up in the next few weeks, including the trailblazing nun, British Bakuni, Venerable Chanda and the ever-serene American bikuni, Venerable Santusica. It was an absolute privilege for me being able to interview both of them, and I hope that you stick around to hear their stories. Until then, keep digging for the treasure within. <laughs>